madness of materialism in the week following the release of the budget. Now, uh, I don't know enough about economic or political theory to comment, so I will keep my opinions to myself, but uh, it would seem at least our politicians are being biblical, as Jesus said, you, the rich you will always, uh, the poor you will always have with you. That was a joke, that was terrible. <laughs> So um, this morning we are looking at James chapter 5, and uh, I like to think of it like this. These uh, passages are like an eschatological blacklight. If you've ever seen a blacklight, and if you've ever watched, say, CSI or one of those crime scene kind of television programs, they have these blacklights. It's a lamp that emits an ultraviolet light that illuminates things that are not visible to the naked eye under the normal spectrums of light that we can see. It allows us to see things that are invisible. And in the same way, the scriptures act as a kind of spiritual black light. They reveal the imperfections and impurities in our beliefs, our values, and our desires. As the writer of Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the the division of soul and spirit and the joints of joints and marrows and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Well, just as in the time that James penned his letter, we live in a world where the fallen nature is present and we have an affluent culture, and these together provide all of the necessary ingredients to produce a strong temptation towards eschatological indifference. Now, what do I mean by that? By eschatological indifference, I mean living as if this life is all that there is, and this is the very core of materialism. Materialism, if not implicitly, then by our actions, denies the reality of future judgment. So this kind of eschatological of future indifference contrasts with a genuine faith which is manifested by patiently and prayerfully waiting for the coming of the Lord. So if we can jump to the... Oh, I've got the clicker. Got about that. Aha. All right. So the first thing I wanted to look at is the definition of, definition of materialism. I was given the title, The Madness of Materialism. I think that's brilliant. Well, I, I looked it up in the dictionary, and I got two definitions. The first definition, the one that is the more common usage of materialism, is, is this a preoccupation or emphasis on material objects, comforts and considerations with a disinterest or a rejection of spiritual, intellectual, or cultural values. But there is another definition. It is the philosophical theory that regards matter and its various motions as constituting the universe and all of the phenomena within the universe, including those of mind, and is due and due 
the material, and everything is due to material agencies. Now, I think it's interesting that these two are related. Am I? These two definitions are, uh, not, while not equivocal, are consistent with one another. For instance, if matter is all that exists, and if I am a random collocation of atoms that has come together through a series of mindless processes, and I live in a universe without meaning, rhyme, or reason, why shouldn't my entire ethic be the will to power, as Nietzsche put it, or the pursuit of pleasure. And this is what Paul deals with in Acts when he's talking, he's debating in Athens with the Stoics and the Epicureans. One, the pursuit of power, the other's the pursuit of pleasure. I know that's a, a reduction to, of, of the meaning of that, but it's interesting that there's a relationship between the two definitions that I think the philosophical definition of materialism is a necessary component for the common definition, if we disregard the if the we disregard the spiritual, we will end up in either the pursuit of power, the will to power, or the pursuit of pleasure. Anyway, I wasn't going to give you a lecture on philosophy, so let's get to the text. I think the context of this is very important, and it. Chapter 5, 1 through 6, almost stands parenthetically between the end of chapter 4 and verse 7. And uh, there is a lot of... Let me just jump back. The question is who's being addressed... Uh, who is the text being addressed to? And, of course, we know from the chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, it is written to Jews of the dispersion, who are outside of Jerusalem, who have been dispersed throughout Asia Minor and so on, um, who are facing various trials. And as we narrow down our scope, he addresses the, the finitude, the shortness, the, 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 the vaporness of the rich in verse uh, 1, 9 through 11, he says, As the grass withers, so the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. And of course, chapter 5 follows on from chapter 4, where James addresses worldliness in the church. And he says, You desire, and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So we have desire, murder, covetousness, fighting, quarreling, asking of God but not receiving because of the desire to spend what you ask for on worldly pleasures. So James has in chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, has been dealing with this kind of pride, the boasting, the arrogance of presumably people within the covenant community, and now he turns his attention to the plight of the unrighteous wealthy. I think this stands parenthetically because when you turn to verse 7 of chapter 5, there is a therefore. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Well, if there's a therefore there, we have to know what it's there for. 
So we go back, and it, there is no uh, exhortation in the six verses we'll look at today. It is simply condemnation. There is no uh, appeal for repentance. It is almost just condemnation. That's, but there is debate amongst scholars, and uh, if you're interested in that, you can and go and do some further research. But it, it follows, the, the kind of wording follows the Old Testament diatribes that were written against the oppressive pagan nations surrounding. So let's read the text. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived on earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and you have murdered the just as he does not resist you. Now, the Bible does not discourage the acquiring of wealth. In the law of Moses, specific rules were laid down for the getting and securing of wealth. The Jews in Canaan owned their own property, they worked it, and they benefited from its produce. In several of Jesus' parables, he seems to indicate his respect for persons of property and private gain. And so there is nothing in the epistles or in the gospels that necessarily contradicts the right for private ownership or for the making of profit. In fact, in places, the Bible encourages this. For instance, the Bible commends us, and in fact, it commands us to provide for the necessaries of our life and our families. In 1 Timothy 5, 8, uh, Paul says, if a man does not provide for the needs of his family, he is worse than an unbeliever and has denied the faith. So there's not, there is nothing wrong. In fact, it's commanded to provide. And that comes out of wise stewardship of what God has given us. And there's nothing wrong with necessarily living comfortably either. We can much more serve the Lord when life is not a constant struggle to survive. But wealth becomes a problem when it begins to control us. Rather than us controlling the wealth and doing it and using it, uh, using it in a godly way, it can start to control us. Rather than our, us owning our possessions, our possessions can begin to fall uh, to own us. But there are many examples of righteous rich throughout the scripture. There are plenty of examples in the Old Testament. We have Job, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, uh, Jehoshaphat, and Hezekiel. Oh, sorry, Hezekiah. And uh, that's not just restricted to the Old Testament. We have New Testament examples as well. We have... 
We have people who uh, supported Jesus throughout the term of his ministry. We have Joseph of Arimathea. We have uh, the woman supporters of Jesus. We have the Roman centurion. Uh, we have Philemon, Joseph, Lydia, Cornelius, and the Ethiopian treasurer. These were all people of means who were godly people. So there can be godly rich or godly wealthy people. But now we are contrasting this with the unrighteous godly, uh, the unrighteous rich. Jesus says in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth or rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus says we can lay up treasure in two places. We can lay it up here on earth, or we can lay it up in heaven. So there are several key, key themes in the passage that we'll look at. First, there's a re rebuke to rich unbelievers who are in danger of divine judgment. We should be careful not to uselessly hoard wealth. We should not cheat people out of money. We should be careful not to live in luxury and self-indulgence. We should be careful not to harm people for the sake of our own profit. And we should be careful as God's faithful stewards and his servants in our financial stewardship. So why would, if this stands parenthetically and is almost outside of what believers would be, they'd be reading this, they'd be hearing this in the church, but uh, if it's for non-believers, why would James spend six verses denouncing those who are outside of the church who would never read this warning anyway? Well, it's very similar to the Old Testament prophets who pronounced the woes that were coming upon Israel's pagan enemies. The warnings served two main purposes. First, they should encourage us who know God to be faithful and endure, and we see that in verse 7, knowing that in due time he will judge the wicked. And secondly, it should, it should warn us not to fall into any of the sins that will bring judgment on the wicked. In case... James is address, in this case, James is addressing, it is easy when you're poor and oppressed to think, man, if I can only get more wealth, then I would, have no, I would no longer have to deal with all these problems. And it is tough when you are in poverty. But we can be tempted to pursue wealth, mistakenly thinking that happiness lies in getting rich. So to the church, James is saying, because wealth can be a dangerous tra trap, we should be careful not to use it in an ungodly manner, but rather to be faithful to God. And in some ways, uh, wealth can be the antimony to faith. Consider the rich young ruler. Uh, Jesus, he had 
lived up to the requirements of the law in his, in his mind. And he said, well, what else do I need to do? And Jesus says to him, well, if you want to be perfect, go and sell everything that you possess and give that money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus says, come, follow me. And when the rich young ruler, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The value of his material possessions here and now outweighed the value of knowing Jesus and having that eternal life and that eternal relationship with Christ. So there is a real danger in the pursuit of wealth. Not to delineate too far. Um, in First Timothy, Paul says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a sneer, into many senseless, senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Notice it's not money, it is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the, pay, uh, from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee from these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. So as Christians, we know that the Bible has many warnings against the dangers of, pursu uh, and the dangers of pursuing wealth. But maybe we sometimes think, hey, I could handle it. And I'd love to give it a try. I would love to be wealthy. And it does sometimes seem that wealth would solve a lot of our problems. But we often forget that wealth creates a lot of problems too. So we cannot be too quick to ignore what James has to say in these six verses. So what, on what basis does James give this scathing Uh, in condemnation of the wicked rich. Well, firstly, they hoarded their wealth for selfish reasons, selfish motives. You have laid up treasure in the last days. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. And secondly, they have defrauded and oppressed the innocent in the attempt to acquire their wealth. Now, there seems to be an interlocking relationship between these two indictments, and that suggests that they're quite closely related. Their self-centered attitude, the self-centered attitude of the rich in seeking their own pleasure and indulgence is expressed through or by the oppressing of others. Why? Because their wealth rests on the exploitation of the poor. They got rich precisely by not paying the wages of their hired laborers, that's verse 4, and by condemning the innocent to death, probably by starvation. 
they hoarded um, their wealth, but the danger in that is that it deteriorates. In verses 2 and 3, James describes the wealth of the wicked, wicked as having rotted. It is moth-eaten. It is rusted. Now, of course, this is not the perspective that rich people or the unrighteous rich, I should say, themselves have. They think in their eyes, the riches, all the wonderful clothes and the bling and gold and silver and, and all these fancy, shiny new things uh, fill their lives with satisfaction. But from that eschatological blacklight, that point of view, they are really, in reality, already rotten. And the verb tense there suggests that this is the case. It is an almost present tense. It is prophetic in one way, but it is present tense also. It is already as it is becoming rotted. And it is only a matter of time before the inherent rottedness of their riches will be revealed. And it's only a matter of time before these ill-gotten riches will be burned up by the fires of divine judgment. So James is trying to get us to see that the filthy, the filthy rich through prophetic eyes to see that this outer veneer that seems so attractive and dazzles us is just really we're just seeing through the flesh. And we need to start looking at this in the way God sees it. There are a lot of reasons why the unrighteous rich are condemned. Uh, the first is hoarding. They just hoarded for... Um, no benefit whatsoever to anyone. They just hoarded. What I mean, what use is a silo full of grain if it's just it's just rotting away? What use is it? What use is it if you go to your closet and you open it up and you walk in and you walk in and you keep walking and you finally find that jacket or tie or whatever you're looking for and it's all moth-eaten? And what use is that? What use is food if it's spoiled, you know? Uh, if it's all moldy, you know, you open your fridge and you've got that loaf of bread and it's been there for four months and it's all, you know, it's growing new sort of life forms. And you think, well, what use is that? Think of all of the opportunities that were missed. And James has said earlier in this book, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep one unstained from the world. But there's a greater danger, is that you can set your hope on riches. And I think this is why when James writes this, you can see a lot of close parallels to Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is talking about being anxious about your life, being anxious about where you're going to get your food, being anxious about where you're going to get your clothes from. It is the rich may set their hope on their wealth rather than God who can and will provide everything that is necessary for life and godliness, for a life that is full. Riches are fleeting. Uh, in Proverbs 23, verse 5, it says, 
for the riches certainly make wings from themselves and they fly away. They disappear. So the eschatological blacklight exposes the true nature of this wealth, this unrighteous wealth, and it is idolatry. It's idolatry. That's what it is. It is an idolatry that has gripped the hearts of the unrighteous wealthy so much that they cannot even save their soul if they wanted to because they are so enslaved to their self-indulgent, luxurious lifestyle. They would rather die like the rich young ruler in the midst of their pitiful rebellion against the almighty God then turn and be saved from the wrath that is to come. The irony about hoarding wealth is that you cannot take it with you when you die. Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. If your heart is set on earthly wealth, it will be set on earthly things, not on heavenly things where Christ sits at the right hand of God. And when your heart is set on earthly treasure, it is not centered on God. It is ultimately set on yourself. They are worshiping and serving themselves rather than the creator God. That is what these unrighteous wealthy are doing. They are in the midst of a rebellious and uh, insidious idolatry. You see, James in verse 3 says, In the last days you have stored up treasure. And by last days, he's referring to that period between Christ's ascension and his second coming, which was viewed as the last days. And this has the corollary in Acts 2, 2 Timothy 3, Hebrews chapter 1. But death will be the last day for all of us, at least on this earth. And as the rich fool in the parable and the, that play, that was fantastic. But that the, what he found out is that he had plenty stored up for this life. He had everything he could want. He, you know, he had that iPhone 6C. That's, you know, he had the thing. Well, he probably didn't, you know, it's just, but anyway, he had everything that this life could offer finances. Wow, brilliant. But when he died, what mattered most, he was desperately poor in. He was bankrupt in. He was not rich towards God. And to be rich towards God, to be rich without God is to be short-sighted. It's to be myopic in the light of eternity. Think of this. It is like a man counting gold coins on the deck of the Titanic as it is sinking. Not only will that man lose his money, he is going to lose his life. And these are the options when there is no God in your life. The Titanic is sinking. You are going to die one day. Sooner or later, you will die. Maybe this night, your life may be demanded of you. Your soul may be demanded of you. 
So without God, you have these two options. The Titanic is sinking, and you can either be the stoic who stands on the deck saluting as water rushes in because it looks good, or you can be the Epicurean, the fundamental hedonist who goes down into the hull to drink scotch and play poker because it feels good. But without that transcendent purpose in your life, it does not make sense. Let alone, can any wealth serve any purpose other than just acting like a band-aid over a wound that has become fatally septic? Mortality is staring us all in the face, and we are looking down the barrel of the gun. And in those situations, money is of no value. It cannot save you from death. The warning is not to place your hope in money, in wealth. But these are what the unrighteous wealthy are doing. They're hoarding all this stuff, thinking, yes, this will give me the life that I want, but it won't because you will die. It's sad. It's like when we look at the rich young ruler, we realize that he was so in love with himself and what he owned that he would rather prefer death with a big bag of gold in his hand, then repentance and serving and walking with Jesus and serving the living God. Uh, Secondly, the acquisition of their wealth was ill-gained. Now, in, in Palestine at the time, it was common for peasant families to be forced off their land due to foreclosures of their property, or perhaps if they were unable to keep up with a continually uh, growing market, then they would perhaps have to, uh, they weren't able to pay for the equipment and the, the people to work the land and so on, so they would have to sell it. And so th- this would tend to end up with these very wealthy landowners who would have people working the land. Now, James was denouncing these really wealthy landowners because they were cheating the labourers out of their hard-earned wages. Whether or not they were paying them in full, the full amount promised, or whether they were just cheating them on the pretext that they had not fulfilled their quotas is is irrelevant. What we do know is that they were cheating the workers of the fields out of their wages. And it may have been a common enough problem to be mentioned several times in the Bible. In Leviticus 19, uh, it states, You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor shall you rob him. The wages of a hired man are to remain with you, uh, are not to remain with you all night until morning. That is, you get paid on the day that you work. You don't get paid tomorrow. You get paid when you finish your day's work. Again, in Deuteronomy, the commandment comes down, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your own countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land or in your towns. You shall give him the wages on the day before the sun sets, for he is poor and he has set his heart on it, so that he may not cry out against you to the Lord and it becomes sin against you. You see, each day's food would probably be just enough for a, uh, sorry, each day's wage would probably be enough just for that day's food. And in these situations, if a laborer was not paid by the end of the day, he and his family would have to go hungry. 
So to withhold money on the false pretenses that the unrighteous wealthy would have had is to literally rob the worker and his family of their daily bread, their food. So these poor day laborers were often treated so badly by their employers um, that they might have been given the option to give up to quit. But they couldn't. They're enslaved because they have to feed their families. And if the day laborers quit, they would lose probably all their back wages as well. Now, the irony of this is that the money to pay the uh, laborers is just sitting in the bank. The wealthy, it's not like they didn't have that money. They were hoarding it for their own uses rather than paying the people who rightfully deserved it. And these uh, uh, abused and oppressed laborers pray to God. They cry out to the Lord of the Sabbath just as Abel's blood, uh, blood is crying out to God from justice against his brother Cain. The good thing here is that the Lord of the Sabbath who is in heaven listens to the cry of the oppressed and he will bring about justice to those who cry on him day and night. And it says that in Luke chapter 18. They were also harming people for the sake of their own profit. They were using their own wealth to manipulate the legal system, perhaps through wage disputes or through claiming land titles, through scrupulous means, perhaps through bribing court officials, which is specifically denounced in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, um, or hiring powerful lawyers who could uh, defend them against people who were unable to provide their own legal aid and be able to present their case well in court. Basically, they were legally defrauding people from what they were rightfully owed. And uh, James says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. How can he? How can he? If you've got uh, a lawyer who you know, charges $12,000 an hour, how can you stand up against that if you have no legal aid and no legal defense and don't understand you know, the black law, you know, book of law and that kind of thing? How, how can you stand up against that? How can... How can they receive justice? Well, they do, and ultimately they do receive justice. God will judge and swiftly the unrighteous wealthy. Um, and these wealthy people were living a life of decadence while others starved. Um, I've never been to India, but you hear stories of these beautifully elaborate palaces and leaning up against the sides of the high walls that surround these palaces are sheets of iron where people sleep under. The contrast between the rich and poor is astonishing. And you see this in the parable that Jesus tells of the rich man and Lazarus, which we heard earlier. The rich man lived in the splendor while Lazarus, he was covered in sores. He longed to be fed just with the crumbs that would fall from the man's table. But after death, their roles were reversed. The rich, 
The rich man was in agony in the flames of hell, whereas Lazarus was comfortably in Abraham's bosom. And the point of this story is not that all rich people go to hell. That's not what it's saying. Or not that all people, poor people go to heaven. That's not what it's saying. The Bible is very clear that there are godly rich people and there are ungodly poor people. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. But the rich man's selfish indulgence and lack of compassion for the poor reflected his godless, selfish focus in life. Behind all of this is greed. It is greed that makes us hoard, steal, or be stingy over things. Jesus said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Basically, greed is synonymous with covetousness, which typically craves things or possessions. This covetousness is the last thing expressly pro uh, prohibited in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. Communicating some of the most serious uh, and grave sins of greed. Elsewhere, greed surfaces as the desire to be rich, and there's the love of money, which is the root of all kinds of evil. And while these are manifestations of greed in the Bible and in our lives, they are so concretely material, it is so important to note that greed is an inordinate desire. It is a disordered love, a revolt of the heart, a misplaced craving. From within our hearts, says Jesus, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Greed is desire gone wrong. God created humanity, uh, the vice regents of his amazing and lavish creation, to have and possess with a healthy desire to acquire. But to covet means to desire some sort of object or, or thing that we shouldn't, or to have a desire that is inappropriately intense. The desire for possessions itself is not evil, for position itself is not evil but good, but desiring the, the, the desiring God designed us to be desiring humans. And on and one day all our good desires will be met. But when desire is out of proportion or misdirected, it, it is sin. It is the very essence of sin. It is idolatry. It is the unbelief in the heart directed towards money or possessions. We don't believe in God and his, that he is good enough, so we turn elsewhere. And thus, the contentment that is in the heart should, we should be getting from God starts to get, we start to get it from somewhere else. Greed makes God something other, makes God out of something other than that, is, that which is the true God. And it is a breach of the, the Tenth Commandment. Greed, as in the case of the rich young ruler, chokes and starves saving faith. And so Jesus says 
basically not mincing words, you cannot serve God and money. So, to conclude, this life is not final. The wicked may live luxuriously on the earth and oppress the righteous with no consequences here and now. But the test will be the final judgment and eternity. We need to see things through that eschatological lens, through that eschatological blacklight. And it requires faith to accept this. You either trust money that you see now or you trust the Lord that you will see in the coming day. If you trust in the Lord, then you will be a good steward of the money and possessions that he entrusts to you. He owns it, and we must give him an account of how we have used it. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells this unusual parable of the unrighteous steward. He is about to be fired for his mismanagement, but he shrewdly calls on his master's debtors and reduces the amount that they owe. Now, Jesus' point was not that we should be corrupt in order to get ahead. That's not what he's saying. Rather, his point was that we should imitate this godless man who thought that in advance about his future and use what he had to make provision for himself, we should use the unrighteous mammon that we now have to make friends so that when it fails, they will receive us into eternal dwellings. In other words, while you can use your money, you can use your money in a way that will be taken away to bring, bring people to Christ, and that can never be taken away. Jesus goes on to say, He was faithful in the very little things, is faithful also in much. But he was unrighteous in the very little things, is unrighteous also in much. In this context, the very little thing is money. It is a big thing to us, but to God, it's a little thing. And that he uses that as a litmus test to prove whether we will be faithful in the more important things in life. In this context, the much refers to the eternal soul and the eternal souls of people around us. So what is the antidote if we are facing this kind of attitude? Well, the Apostle Paul in uh, uh, Philippians chapter 4 says he's found the secret of contentment uh, and inner stability that comes from knowing Jesus is the rewarder of those who seek him. And that he himself is a rewarder of surpassing value. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, casting contentment in Christ is the opposite of greed and the love of money. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world when we leave. But if we have food and clothing with these things, we will be content. If you want God to entrust true spiritual riches to you, prove yourself by being a faithful in managing as the finances he has entrusted you with now. We need to examine ourselves prayerfully and very, very often, especially in the world and the culture we live in, so that we do not fall into the category of people which James is condemning. I believe that the Lord wants us to live simply and manage our resources in the light 
of his eternal purposes. So some questions that are worth asking ourselves, and these are things we can perhaps reflect on. How, are, how am I utilizing my resources that God has blessed me with? Am I hoarding wealth for my own pleasure? Is my spending marked with Christian generosity, or is it marked by something else? What does the use of my money say about what makes me happy? Is my spending so cautious that it keeps me from loving those who are close to me well, or is it so cautious that it prevents me from loving anyone at all? Am I collecting for this life or the life to come? And is my spending explicitly supporting the spread of the gospel and the needs of the church? James in this passage is, I think, he's probably, he probably heard the Sermon on the Mount, I, I suspect. And he, in some ways he's paraphrasing what Jesus said. Jesus says, Do not lay your, up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth or rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. The eye of your body, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be filled with light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be filled with darkness. Now just to jump to the side there, one way we can become infatuated with wealth and by greed and that is magazines and television and those things that come through the, the letterbox, you know, the circulars that come, you flip through them and go, wow, I'd love one of those things. And it becomes this insatiable desire within us. It's what we see goes in, into the mind and the mind dwells on it and processes and that, and that influences the way we think. And that's, I think, why Jesus says this straight after he's talking. You know, he puts that passage straight between no one can serve, he says at the end of that, no one can serve two masters. For he either will hate the one and love the other, otherwise, or he will be devoted to one and, and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And then he says this, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on is life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not, are they not of more value? Are you not more of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? or a single foot to his stature, I think, is the one way you can render it. I wish you could, but anyway. Um, and why be anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, that neither they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God... So clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? 
Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father, he knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. At the core of this is that uncertainty. The desire to be wealthy is an uncertainty, a fear that, hey, will I survive? Will I get on? Now, that doesn't mean you need to be unwise in the way you manage your finances, manage your life, manage the gifts you've been given, and so on. It's important to be a wise steward, making the most of the time for the days are evil. But at the same time, God knows your situation, and he cares for you, and he will provide. Paul says in um, Philippians 4, he says, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Why should we be anxious about these things? This is the contrast between the unrighteous rich and the righteous rich. It's where we place our confidence. And if we place our confidence in Jesus Christ and knowing him, we can never be let down. He will not disappoint us. He will come through for us. He will provide for our needs. Um, I'm probably running over time. I could give you a story. I, can I give you a short story, an illustration? Is that okay? You're okay with that? Cool. Um, maybe it was about a month ago. About a month ago. Uh, Larissa and I, we uh, we had to pick up, get some petrol. So we went to the gas station and the I went in and you know, paid for $20 gas and went out. And as I was walking out, the guy said, would you like me to pump it for you? And I said, oh, well, okay, because I, I was going to pump it. And I told the guy inside the, the gas station that I, I, I'll do it. No, I can do it. So as I walked out, the guy asked me, would you um, like me to pump it for you? And I, I said, oh, okay. So I got into the car and had a, Larissa and I started talking. And after we, after a while, we started thinking, hmm, okay, this is kind of taking a bit long. And then uh, the, we hear some kind of muttering going on outside the car. And what had happened is the pump guy, the forecourt attendant, had, rather than putting $20 gas into the car, he had filled it all the way to the top. I don't know whether of you guys have ever been in this kind of predicament before. It's not pleasant because um, you have limited options. Um, so we now owed, you know, 80-something dollars worth of gas. And we thought, oh, my goodness, how, how are we going to do this? So we went in, and after some kind of conversation and, and discussion about what, what would happen, and we find some people who are in the know about these kinds of things and so on, what, what's supposed to happen, we decided, oh, okay, we, we're going to use the gas. We, we have to pay for it. But we are going to have to pay for it over a period of a month or so because we just can't, we don't finance and that. We don't budget that amount of petrol. We don't fill it all the way to the top every time. Now, they have these agreements, these pre-written, pre-planned agreements for these kinds of situations in gas stations, an agreement, a legal agreement that if you can't pay for your gas, you can sign this thing and say, yes, we have arranged a payment plan and we'll come and pay it at this rate. Now, it's about three pages long and we were filling it out and so on. And uh, as we were just about 
and we just handed it over to the guy, signed it, all, all was taken care of. Um, another guy who had just walked on, um, as we were just handing this over, he said, I'll pay for it, I'll pay for you. I'll, I'll, I'll pay it, I'll pay it. I mean, it's like 60 something dollars worth of gas. He just said, I'll, I'll pay it for you. And um, it, was, it was flabbergasting. It was, uh, it was incredible. The, the generosity. Now, I, haven't, I, did, I don't know whether this guy was a Christian. I don't know where he stands with God. But that is an example of the amazing, it was just an amazing generosity. It was the grace of God in that moment. It was um, God providing for us. And God does provide. And I would like to think that that was Christian generosity. I really would, and I, I do sincerely hope that the, this guy, he, he, you know, he was wearing a construction thing, so I don't know, he, maybe, he looked maybe a road worker or painter or something like that. Didn't look like a guy who had, you know, flashy suit and, you know, a $400 Parker pen, you know. Just an average person said, oh, we'll pay it for you. And that is an example of God not only through the sky providing for our need, but um, an example of how we should be as Christians in our generosity in contrast to who we've looked at in the passage. So... I thought, considering that Jesus finishes in this, he says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be, gathered unto, uh, will be added unto you. I thought we could sing that hymn, but uh, I believe we have Larissa and Susanna who are going to sing for us. Thank you. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you um, so much for your rich provision towards us. We thank you for the life that you've given us and that we can live this life by the power of your Spirit and through uh, the riches of your Word abundantly and to the full. Lord, we just pray uh, that we would be wise stewards of what you've provided us with, whether it be our finances, or the giftings you've given us, or our place in life, that we would use it to your glory and to the uh, continuation of the spreading of the gospel, and that we would live uh, out of a heart of love. So, Lord, we just pray as we go into this week um, that we would reflect on these things, and that you would be with us, as you promised that you always will be. We pray this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.